Welcome to the Better's Verdict. We're going to dive right in today because we have an extremely exciting guest. He is the CEO of Avenue Capital and the co-owner of the NBA champion, now Milwaukee Bucks, Mark Lasry. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we're going to get to the Bucks because, of course, we know that's what the people want to hear about. But before that, I'm a lawyer and this is a this is a law podcast. So I, I have to point out that in addition to being the CEO of Avenue and the co-owner of the Bucks, you're you're also a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I am. Um, we have we have a lot of lawyers that listen to this pod and might be wondering how on earth did you go from being I guess you were a bankruptcy lawyer, is that right? Yeah. Um so let's see what happened. I was a lawyer. I went to law school. I thought I was going to be a tax lawyer. And then ultimately, I ended up clerking for the chief bankruptcy judge here in New York. And so what happens is when you do that, you, you know, all the offers you get are to be a bankruptcy lawyer. So mm -hmm. I practiced law for about a year. And then I went to a small investment firm to be in their legal department. Um, and then I started investing there. I was always really good in math. So, you know, one thing led to another. It was I got to do investing for them and um, just ended up starting out buying trade claims. So, yeah, I, I, I only practiced law for about a year or two. And then I got out of law pretty quickly and got on to the. Made a quick exit. So I, I guess there's nothing you miss about those one to two years of practicing. <laughs> No, no, it was like, it was fun. It was fine. I mean, it's, um, look, we all take different roads. Um, obviously, I didn't know that by going onto the investment side, things would work out as well as they did. But yeah, it, it was pretty fortuitous for me. So did that legal background come in handy at all in your co-ownership of the Bucks? I'd imagine that with an NBA team, you have all sorts of legal issues popping up left and right. Yeah, no, look, I think being a lawyer, it's been a great background. I think it's been a great background on both things, on the investment side, on, you know, with the team. It's just you're able to assess legal risks a lot easier than I think uh, other folks are just simply because you're a lawyer, right? It's not foreign to you. So I think it's been a phenomenal background. So let's jump to the bucks. So you and your partners bought the team in 2014. At the time, and I remember we, we crossed paths at the time and someone said, well, they have they have the worst record in the league. They're they're 15 and 67 this year. And someone else said, well, you're going to you'll turn that around. So <laughs> boy, is that turn out to be true. What was the plan at the time? Well, the plan at the time when we did it, it actually was interesting because it like, it's exactly what you said. We were the worst team. And so when we looked at it, we thought all there was was upside. In all <laughs> the metrics, when we looked at the Bucks, they were, out of 30 teams, they were number 30. They had the worst record in the league. On sales, they were 30th or 29th. No matter what it was, whatever you looked at, beer sales, everything, you know, ticket sales, sponsorship, the Bucks were literally either 30 out of 30 or 29 out of 30. So we thought... You know, they were in the bottom 10% of the league. So we thought if we do a good job, we should be able to at least turn the franchise around. So instead of being, you know, in the bottom 10%, let's try to be in the top 25%. You know, you had a horrible stadium. You had 
a practice facility where the roof leaked and people had to put towels on the court. I mean, it was just, you wouldn't believe it. So it was, uh, so what ended up happening is after we bought the team right away, we worked on getting a new arena, getting a new practice facility and just changing the culture. And we thought once we did that, um, you know, we brought in a good GM, we brought in, you know, Jason Kidd was the coach, brought in a new coach. So, um, you know, the idea was let's change and turn things. And it's um, it's worked out, obviously. So at the time, Giannis was on the team already, but he was, I guess, a rookie or a second year player. He was a rookie. Yep. He, he, he was a rookie back then. And he wasn't he wasn't a top pick. He wasn't a lottery pick. Was it foreseeable? Did, did you guys think you had a back to back MVP on your team? <laughs> no, I think what we thought is we had a really talented player. And you would hope that uh, you knew he was going to develop and he was going to be good. You just didn't know how good. And I think that's been the surprise for everybody. Obviously, I think, um, you know, he was the 15th pick. But more important than that, I think even after his first year, I think when we spoke to the current GM or to the GM about him, it was, look, he's really talented. He'll have a place in this league. And he could be really good, but he's still developing. From from a purely fan perspective, I have to say one thing that's incredible about Giannis is how much he not only has developed, but seems to still be developing. I mean, in my view, and, and we'll get to this in a little bit, but he made a leap even in the playoffs this year and took his game to a level that we hadn't seen before, which is pretty incredible, given that he did win two MVPs the two years before. Yeah, you know, the great thing about Giannis is he's always striving for perfection. So he's relentless about that. And that's a, you know, it's a personality. Uh, you know, you could say it's a defect. It's a personality advantage that, you know, Giannis just wants to be better no matter how good he is. You know, that's ingrained in him. And that's why you constantly see him getting better. I mean, he just he keeps working on his craft non-stop um so i think i think Giannis will be better this year i think he'll be better the following year um what's interesting is i think the vast majority of people in the league know that i mean he's relentless about trying to get better um so it's great there's certainly in my view some sort of early 2000 shack vibes in the sense of how big and dominant he is and frankly how hard he is to officiate because he just can go right at the basket and is is basically unstoppable at his size yeah, he gets fouled every time, and they don't call a foul. You're absolutely <laughs> annoying. Trust me. I'm always complaining. I'm always like, listen, you know, Giannis is getting fouled every time he goes, but he's so strong and big. You know, the refs don't call it every time. So going back to the around the time you got the team, shortly thereafter, you made a big commitment to Chris Middleton, who has also had several all-star appearances since then. At the time, it was a five-year, $70 million contract, I believe. Yeah. And this is interesting to me because when you look back at his numbers during that time, he wasn't an all-star level player. What did you see in him? We thought he was. The thing that was amazing about Chris was that Chris could always get his shot. And you just... You know, we saw it. We saw it in practice. We saw it in games. And we just thought that over time, Chris was just going to keep on developing. And, you know, that was our view. It turned out to be correct. 
but that's what makes Chris special, and you see it, is for some reason his shot is unstoppable. I mean, guys can't block it, so he can always get his shot off, which is uh, the hardest thing to do in the NBA. Yeah, I don't think many people would have pegged him back then or even more recently as someone that could drop 40 in a late playoff game or or do anything like that. He was, to some, some called him a sort of 3 and D player back then. I, I'm from Philadelphia. We had a player on the Sixers named Robert Covington, who is sort of a quintessential 3 and D player. But the difference between someone like him and Chris Middleton is he's not a shot creator, too. That's what's really incredible. Right. So we thought he was. So, look, you know, part of what you do in the NBA is you make bets on people. Right. And I think it's, you know, for us, we thought Chris was exceptionally talented and we thought he was going to develop into an all star. You know, as luck would have it, we were right. Right. Giannis, we thought was going to develop and become, you know, a better player within two or three years. We realized how talented he was. You know, so I, I think as you put together a team, what you try to do is find players that today, you know, you believe you're going to pay them a certain amount and you hope, obviously, that they're going to be better you know, two years from now or three years from now. And if that happens, then it's great. And if it doesn't happen, then obviously you made a mistake. So it's that's part of the game. Certainly what it's what happened here. So from... 2017 to 2020 or so, you had Giannis emerging, you had this very talented core, but there were there were a couple of years um, in the bubble and the year before where there were some playoff disappointments. Um, in, in the poker world where I grew up, we often focus on whether something is sort of process-oriented or results-oriented. You want to be process-oriented and do the right thing. I'm sure it's the same in, in the investing world too. How did you sort of view that? in 2019-2020 was it well we feel like we're doing the right things but just the ball didn't bounce our way that's what you say (laughs) i mean it's look at the end of the day the nba is about winning and we absolutely felt we were doing the right thing we absolutely felt we were progressing but there's a frustration level and because you keep getting better, but so do other people. It's not like static. I mean, what you're, as we're trying to get better, other teams are trying to get better. So I think one of the things you quickly realize in the NBA is when you have an opportunity to win, you have to win. You know, you saw that this year. You know, we were down 2-0 with the Nets, and we had to win the third game, and we did. And then you had to win the fourth game, and then we did. You know, so then we lose the fifth game, um, which means you better win the sixth game because you got no <laughs> right? And then you win that. So then, you know, you sort of look at a game, one game at a time, but then you win that game and then you've got no other choice. You got to go win the next game. You know, it's the same thing. I mean, we did everything right, but if Kevin Durant's foot was behind the line, we would have lost. Right. If his shoe was one inch shorter. Yeah. So it's, so that's why I say when you have an opportunity, you have to grab it. And, you know, luck plays a part in it, but also you've got to take advantage of that. And I think we did that in the overtime. You know, we were able to beat Atlanta, but then same thing. And with Phoenix, you're down 0-2. The pressure's on you, so you got to come back because you don't know if you're going to get to the finals again. 
right? So I think that's what we keep on. That's how players sort of view this. And things worked out, obviously, but um, we got lucky. And um, But a lot of that was just a tremendous amount of hard work. It's interesting you talk about having to seize the opportunity while it's there. A lot of times people refer to this as a championship window. And teams may think they have a very long championship window. I think in 2011 or 12 or so, the Oklahoma City Thunder had Westbrook, Durant, and Harden all going into their primes. They made the finals. They they just didn't they didn't get over the hump. And then sure enough, their championship window evaporated in a second. Of course, you don't hope for that, but uh, you never know what the future holds. Yeah, you don't. And I think that's why you've got to take advantage of it. So I think all we tried to do and, you know, the fact that we had lost, if you think of this year, there was a tremendous focus. I mean, we lost to the heat in the bubble. And what happens? We, you know, we ended up playing the heat in the first round and we sweep them. Um, The Nets are the best team or was viewed as the best team. After two games, I think people wrote us off. Right. So you've got to have that relentless desire to win, but also to believe that you can win and to know that you're in a moment and you can't you can't sort of say, oh, it's OK, next year it'll be better. It's this is the moment. So um, I think we've been able to take advantage of that and we learned quite a bit from what's happened in the past. So, so speaking of deciding that it was the moment. In November of last year, you made a big trade for Drew Holiday. He's another all-star level player. But this was really what I would call an all-in move because you traded a lot of a lot of future draft picks that, that could have, in fact, been very high draft picks if the team regressed a little bit. If, for example, Giannis left in free agency before he signed the extension. Was there a concern at the time of the holiday trade, or did you just say, hey, we got to do everything we can to put a championship core develop together right now? Um, there's always a concern. <laughs> I mean, there is. I think our view was we had an opportunity to get somebody like Drew, and we felt he was the missing piece. And we felt that if he was there, Giannis would recognize that as well. And I think, look, it, it worked. But part of the problem with all these things is, you know, you need to sort of make these bets and you hope they'll work. I mean, I think the Lakers did the same thing with Anthony Davis Mm -hmm. and won a championship. You know, the, the thing that you never know about draft picks is you can have a draft pick that turns out like Giannis. So that's what makes those draft picks so valuable, the potential. Or... You give up on draft picks and you say, I'm going to take somebody who I know can help me today. And so what you're doing is you're betting on today as opposed to the future in the hope that you'll get something right. So I think for us, we wanted to bet on today because we knew we had Giannis, we knew we had Chris, and we needed to get somebody like Drew because in the playoffs, it's about defense. And Drew is just a phenomenal defensive player. Yeah, he... He was incredible throughout the playoffs, shutting down some of the top guards. You mentioned a few minutes ago about playing the Heat in the first round. And I want to talk about sort of the end of the regular season this year before the playoffs. There was a there was a conventional wisdom that the number one seed in the Eastern Conference was the most important thing. And the reason was because there were three juggernaut teams, the Sixers, uh, the Bucks, and the Nets. And 
if you if you weren't in the one seed, you would have to play two of those three en route to the finals. Is that the sort of thing that you or your people are thinking about at all? Or is it just, hey, we're going to do the best we can and whoever comes, comes? Um, I mean, obviously you look at it. I think for us, you want to be the number one seed because um, the math says that you're going to play, if you're the number one, you play number eight. You know, and then if you win, you play number four or five. So mathematically, it's better for you. I think at the end of the day, look, for us, we looked at it and said, we, we're not going to be the number one seed. I mean, we weren't. I mean, it's just Philly was going to end up having that. So it was what it was. And you were going to have to be, look, to get to the finals, you've got to beat really good teams. And so we knew it was going to be a war. Um, we just didn't know how hard of a war it was going to be, but that's what it was. Well, you guys, uh, maybe this wasn't an active decision, but to many fans, at least it seemed like one, which is that there was this big game on May 15th against the Heat. As you mentioned earlier, you lost to the Heat in the bubble in the first round the year before. They're they're considered a really good team, maybe better than their seeding because they had some injuries throughout the year. And the the way that the standings were set up if you won the game, you would pretty much be locking in a matchup with the Heat in round one again. But if you lost, it might have been, well, arguably a slightly easier first round draw. Mm-hmm. A lot of teams rest their players towards the end of the year to get healthy for the playoffs, not necessarily to jockey in the standings. But with that in mind, was it ever even a consideration to rest the guys? No. You know, my view is we have an organization which is about winning. And if you have an organization that's about winning, then your focus is we want to try to win every game. And we knew that if we won that game, we were playing the Heat. And our view was, that's fine. We want to, we want to try and win. And if that means we play the Heat, then we play the Heat. Um, the goal every time we get out on the court is to try and win. And... I think what we've tried to do within the Bucks is to sort of just have a mentality within the business side and within the basketball side that um, the goal is every day to compete and to do the best you can. And if you do that, somehow, at least I believe, somehow life works out. Related to that, this is sort of a more big picture question. It's a little bit perverse that you could get a harder matchup, theoretically, by winning. Is there any discussion amongst the higher-ups in the league to letting the higher seeds choose who they play to sort of make it more fair so that the winners have a bigger advantage? You have that advantage. You do. If you win, you play the eighth seed. If you're number one, you play eight. If you're number two, you play seven. If you're number three, you play six. So we all know that. If you're number four, you play five. So the goal during the regular season is to try to win as many games so that you're the number one seed. I think the system works very well. You know, you have some people who will say, look, I'd rather that we go into, you know, th- there's two philosophies. I want to be the number one seed, so I'm going to try to win as many games as we can. That's philosophy number one. Philosophy number two is I'm not as focused on what seeding I get. I want to go into the playoffs super healthy. So I'm more focused on being healthy because I know if I'm healthy, we'll win. And each one has uh, a validity to it. So 
you know, organizations will do what they think is best for them. And this year there was the added wrinkle where if you were the one seed, you wouldn't necessarily play the eight seed because they had um, the NBA did, I think, for the first or maybe they did it in the bubble too, a play in round. Yeah. How did you feel about how that worked out? I thought, I thought that was great. I think, look, I think ultimately what you want is you want to give everybody a chance to be in the playoffs. So the ninth and tenth teams got to play seven and eight. I thought that was great. I mean, I really did. I think it's, you know, if, if for whatever reason we were the ninth seed, I'd love to have the opportunity to play in the playoffs. And then because you never know what can happen. I thought it was good. Yeah, that's true. We've certainly seen eight seeds beat one seeds over the years several times. Um, and I think, well, in, in the early 2000s or so, the Knicks were an eight seed and they went to the finals. Yeah, it's all good. So so you did indeed win that game. You played you played your players and you won the game and you had round one against the Heat. And it went very differently this year. Do you have any uh, any cutting basketball analysis on why? On why we won? Yeah, it was a similar matchup, but it was just a totally different result this year. Everything looked totally different. I think part of it is, and look, and I, I don't know. I mean, the bubble, for whatever reason, some teams liked it. Some teams just didn't. For whatever reason, it didn't. For us, it was just hard. I think that that was a factor. I think number two, look, Giannis got hurt, you know, and when we played the Heat, so that was a big factor. The other issue, I think, is obviously we had Drew, so I think we were a better team. So there's a lot of reasons, but I think those would be the ones. I think Drew was it was very different. I think Chris played really well. I think Giannis was unstoppable. I think Brooke played great. You know, all our guys played really well. We've mentioned the bubble a few times for, for the listeners that don't recall. During the heart of COVID, the NBA needed to finish its season in, in 2020. So they created a so-called bubble in Disney World. Um, did you spend any time in the bubble? I did. I didn't like it. <laughs> the, you know. There were some um, there were some rumors that the food and accommodations weren't so great. No, no, it wasn't that. I it, it wasn't that. I it was more I didn't find it enjoyable. I, I think part of what makes basketball or sporting events enjoyable is it's a bit of a community. You know, like if you go to a Bucks game, a home game, you know, you got 17,000 fans there. I assume 16,000 want us to win, right? Maybe 1,000 are fans of the other team. But you feel part of a community. It's weird going to a game when you're the only one in the arena. You know, so that's how the bubble was. Um you had no fans, just uh, the owners could come and watch. And, you know, I think at times the families were able to come. Um, it felt very different. And that's why I said to you, I think except for some players, they loved that and some players just hated it. So I think for us, it just, um, I, I didn't enjoy it. Um, I know a number of our players didn't enjoy it, but it is what it is. I mean, I think it worked exceptionally well for the NBA. Um, we were able to finish the season. Um, and that was the goal. Yeah, it, it, it ultimately got the job done, but it was certainly a, a weird experience, I'm sure, for all the insiders, but also just, just watching. But moving back to 2021, so you beat the Heat in the first round, and then you're going into a second-round matchup against the Nets. As you said, you started down 2-0. So, um, you know, I'm sure you're not looking at your odds to win the championship 
at any given time. But when you were down 2-0, they were they were astronomically long. I think maybe something in the neighborhood of 50 to 1 or even longer. Um, I assume that no one around the team felt that way, though. No, I hope you bet on us. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you made millions and billions. Uh, I missed out on it, unfortunately. See? Um, no, look, I think... I think the great thing about sports is um, people believe they can always win, right? So if I was the Nets, I believe, hey, we're up 2-0, we're going to win this thing. The Bucks are thinking, okay, we're down 2-0, all we have to do is do a couple tweaks, make a few more shots, and we'll win. And we're going home, so we'll feel more comfortable. Um, so... Look, would you rather be up 2-0? Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you you don't. You obviously would rather be up 2-0. But um, you always have to believe that you can win. And I think I think when we left New Jersey and we went back to Milwaukee, we absolutely believed we could win. You know, we thought we could win at home. Um, and that's what it was. So it actually, it worked out great for, I mean, look, for the league, it was phenomenal because it was a great series. Um, for us, it, it was great, obviously, because we won, but um, it was a nail biter. That's for sure. So you came back, you tied the series 3-3. We talked a bit about Kevin Durant's shoe size earlier. For those that maybe don't remember, in game seven, which is the deciding game, I, I guess the Nets were down by two at the end of the game and Kevin Durant made what looked like a three-pointer, which would have, which would have won the game. As it turns out, they go to replay and they, you see that his, his, he has a very long foot and his toe was on the, was on the line. Did you know right away that that was going to be a two? No, not at all. No, I don't, I didn't know what the hell was going on. I was like, ah, oh, shit. Uh, <laughs> what the hell was that? My son said, I think that's a two because he was sitting with me and I said, you sure? He goes, yeah. And you know, they go to the video, the replay and we're all waiting and then thank God we see it's a two. Um, so yeah. And everyone's holding their collective breath. And right. as you said earlier, you capitalized on it in overtime, which is, um, which was of course no guarantee even after it was only a two. No. Um, so going to round three, this is where I have to ask a, a sort of selfish question from a Philadelphian. You played the Hawks, who were a good team, but they weren't at the level, at least during the regular season, as the Sixers. Were you guys watching that series and and rooting for the Hawks? Um, no. I mean, I don't think we were watching the series. I think it's you just want to get done with your series and you're happy to play whoever it was, whether it was going to be the Hawks or the, or it was going to be the Sixers. I think for us, we were just happy we won our series. And, um, you know, we thought, we thought we matched up really well against the Hawks and we thought we matched up really well against the Sixers. It, there's certainly a view around Philadelphia rightly or wrongly that the Sixers matched up well with the Bucks because they have players, some players that can guard Giannis um, some would argue that they gave Al Horford a uh, 
a mammoth contract the year before specifically to guard Giannis, which never even happened in the playoffs because the Sixers never ended up playing the Bucks, which is yeah. maybe another reason why even the best laid plans, you know, you never know what's coming. Yeah, look, I don't, I don't think the Sixers, I don't think there's anybody who, who there's no player who can cover Giannis. So, um, so I don't really, I don't ascribe to that theory that the Sixers have somebody who can cover Giannis. I think um, I think the Sixers are a great team. I think um, Giannis is difficult to cover. Or I think Joel Embiid is difficult to cover. Um, but I think at the end of the day, um, I think uh, I think as a team, um, you know, I I like our team, and if I I think you know Philadelphia fans love their team, but um, you know we were able to play. You know the Hawks won. Um, I think it was a series that the Sixers should have won. I mean, I think they were up, what, 25 points at one point? They blew back-to-back 25-point leads in two different games, yeah. Hard to do, but they managed it. Um, So I think, um, look, and I think part of that is you got to give the Hawks credit. They did a great job. Yeah, that's certainly true. Without referring to any specific contract, you know, I sort of mentioned things a little bit earlier. Do you ever see a player signed by another team for a very big deal and think right away, oh, that is going to be an albatross on their book that's going to be difficult to get over? No, I don't think I, I don't ever look at it, it's going to be an albatross. I, I think I look at it and go, wow, that I don't we wouldn't have done that. But. You know, that doesn't. I, I think that's really hard because. I think when you sign a contract, every team believes when they're signing somebody, okay, um, we think this is a value, right? Most people are doing deals that they think make sense. Um, what happens is six months later or a year later or two years later, that contract turns out um, to be one that you wish you had never done. And that's, you know, that's really it. I mean, if you sort of think about it, Chris Paul his contract was viewed as something that you could never trade. Yet, um, everybody, you know, Chris Paul goes to Oklahoma and <laughs> wants Chris Paul. And he goes to the Suns and it turns out to be phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think sometimes it just depends on the team. Um, but, yeah, I mean, look, the value of, an NBA, of a contract in the NBA is you try to sign somebody for $2 million, for someone who plays like he's worth $20 million. Right. That you don't sign somebody for $20 million who sits on your bench. Right? right. That's a bad contract. So, And, of course, bad contracts are bad. Not only, well, from your perspective, you're paying them the money, but probably even worse than that is they tie up your books with the salary cap and it makes it harder to build a winning team. Yeah, that's really it. It's not, it's not that you're paying the money. It's that... Um, you now are not able to make your team better, right? You only have a specific amount of money to spend. So if you're not able to spend that money because you're already locked in, uh, then it's not good. So. so so, you didn't end up playing the Sixers, as we said. You played the Hawks in the Eastern Conference Finals. And Giannis had a terrifying injury. I believe it was in game four, afterwards yeah. the Sixers was tied four, uh, two to two. 
what was the i mean obviously that's not something anybody wants to see and certainly not you what was the feeling after that game well i think the the feeling after the game was um your first thought is okay well thank god we think Giannis is it well we're going to do uh mri but it looks like it's at least medical examinations came back saying that it didn't look like he tore anything. So I think your first focus is on the health of the player. Um, Then by the next day, um, you're like, okay, well, good news. Giannis is fine. Not fine, but Giannis, the the injury isn't as bad as we thought it is. Um, So now the focus is, all right, how do we win? You know, what do we need to do to win? Um, and I think, you know, it, the other guys have to step up and that's really what it is. It's just ultimately, um, you know, next man up and you're not going to have, there's nobody who's as good as Giannis. I mean, obviously the guy was the MVP, but you hope that your other players who are going to step up, um, you know, because now they'll have the ball more that, um, hopefully they'll be able to do what they need to do so that we can win. And that's what happened in game five and game six. I think Chris and uh, Drew and Brooke and Bobby Portis played exceptionally well. That's for sure. Brooke, Brooke Lopez had 33 points in game five, I believe, which is uh, it was a monster. That's something no one could have expected. No, you know what? I, I disagree with that. I think Brooke is an exceptionally talented player. The problem is there's only one ball. And Brooke, being the team player that he is, um, sacrifices a lot to do the things, you know, on a team that most people, you know, don't get the credit for. So I think Brooke um, anchors our defense. Brooke um, is just a huge, I mean, he's a huge offensive player. When we need a basket, we can always go to him. And it's just, I think you saw it in game five. Um, of what Brooke was capable of if he was a focal point of a team. Yeah, while while we're talking about uh, Brooke Lopez, he was he's been as you just said a phenomenal defender for you guys, anchoring the defense. That that wasn't the view of him earlier in his career. Um, some experts said, well, he's he's a great offensive player, but maybe a little bit of a defensive liability. Has something happened since he's come to the Bucks? Um, is it some sort of training or? No, I think it's your it's it, it's your schemes. It's how you use somebody, right? So I think part of it is our scheme is that we're going to have Brooke uh, protect the basket. If you're going to have Brooke at the three point line, um, you know, you're, I would say Brooke is not the quickest guy in the world. <laughs> so it'll be if that's how you're going to use Brooke, you're going to have a harder time. If you're using Brooke to protect the basket, it's great. But look, in the NBA, you're always giving up something. You're either giving up, you're either giving up points in the basket, or you're giving up points at the three-point line. You you can't stop everybody from doing everything. So I think for us, we ended up deciding here's how we're going to use Brooke, and that worked out really well. I think that that's a credit to Brooke, and it's a credit to our coaching staff. Hmm. So you beat the Hawks. And Giannis makes a miraculous recovery and returns for the finals. Um, 
but you end up down 2-0 again. Uh, the betting odds again turned incredibly <laughs> against you. I think you were something like 8-1 to one when you were down 2-0. I hope you bet on it. Did you bet? <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't have again. I you missed two chances. <laughs> What's wrong with you? You could have done it each time. You know, when when a team is down 2-0, oh. I think there's a little bit of nobody believes in us sort of thing because you see the first two games and you think, well, all right, they got they got pretty pretty beaten down the first two games. So, <laughs> uh, but obviously you guys saw something that was, allowed you to turn it around. No, look, I think if you look at the game, um, first game Giannis um, had a hard. I mean, it, it was just harder for him. It was his first game back. Um, you know, he was a little tentative. Um, um, I think by the second game, he felt he felt much better. Um, they couldn't miss the second game. Look, you're not going to beat you're not going to be an NBA team if they're making like 40 percent or 45 percent from threes. You just aren't. So I think our view was, look, going to third game again, we're going home. Um, we've been down 2-0 to the Nets. Um, here's what we're going to do. We're if they're going to beat us, they got to beat us inside. They're not going to beat us outside. So we shut down the three. Um, and sort of it worked. It, it did indeed. You won the next four games. Um, that that brought you to the pinnacle of sort of where you're trying to go in the NBA. What, what, what's it been like afterwards? Is there um, any funny stories or fallout or, or, or celebration tales? I saw on Twitter Giannis going to Chick-fil-A and ordering a, precisely a 50-piece nugget because, uh, you know, he scored 50 in the deciding game. Um, no, it's been great. Look, it's been phenomenal. Um, you don't realize how many people are basketball fans, you know, people calling you up, people. Um, I've got the trophy here at the house, so anybody who comes by always wants to take a picture with the trophy. <laughs> so I think, look, I think ultimately in all of these, it's it's a phenomenal experience. It's been great. And now you're going to try and repeat. So, um, yeah, that's good. Nothing bad. Nothing bad at all. So now you've you've sort of you've co-owned the team for about seven years. What sort of what's the craziest story or con- most controversial decision, or, or or what's something you can give us that, that people might not think of as as something that you encounter in your time there? Uh, there's so many. I, I mean, I'll give you a couple of funny stories. But um, when we when we had bought the team, I, I went to one of the practices and I'm goofing around with one of the players. Um, you know, and I had played basketball in college. So I'm goofing around with one of the players and I said, listen, I got a deal for you. Here's what we're going to do. You and I play one-on-one, but really it's not one-on-one. Um, I get 15 tries to make a basket. <laughs> if I make a basket, one basket, I win. And he goes, okay. And he goes, what are we playing for? I go, well, um, what we're going to play for is, um, you know, we'll play whatever I was paying him. I said, if you win, I pay you double. And if I win, I don't have to pay you. (laughs) And he starts laughing, goes, okay, I'll do that bet. I said, really? He goes, yeah. I said, well, look, just heads up, just so you know, um, I played in college. Um, I don't want you to think I don't know what I'm doing. And the guy goes, oh, not a problem. Just heads up. Um, I play in the NBA. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really not that worried. And from looking at you, 
um, you know, you're kind of old. I'm pretty sure I'll be able to block every shot you have. I was like, really? You really think so? He goes, yeah, I don't think it's going to be that hard. And so he psyched me out. So obviously we didn't bet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's like, it's little things like that. It's just always... um, you 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 develop relationships with the players um you know there was a player after um you know after a game um he had a horrible game i think he, he made like whatever it was like three for 15 something like that and i go in the locker room and i look at him and i'm like yeah that was really bad tonight <laughs> he just starts laughing and goes yeah thanks <laughs> just I don't know if you if you remember, but you're supposed to put the bat the ball in the basket. So try to focus on that for the next game. <laughs> you know, and uh, he goes, yeah, thanks for the pep talk. Go, that's what I'm here for. And then uh, the next game, he was like, whatever, you know, 16 for 18, something like that, right? Oh, he killed it. And he kills it, and he looks at me, you know, when he's running down the court because I was sitting courtside. He goes, Am I doing okay now? Am I doing all right? I was like, yeah, you're doing great. Um, I'll give you a funny one. Chris Middleton, when we were um, we were negotiating his contract, and, you know, we, we'd sort of uh, kid around. I said, Chris, here's what we'll do tonight. How about this? If you don't miss a shot, then I'll pay you the max. But if you miss a shot, you know, then we're going to do it at what I think is fair. And he looks at me, he goes, done. I'm like, you serious? He goes, yeah, all good. I'm like, oh, okay. So we shake hands. I then go away. I'm like, wow, I just suckered Chris into this deal. And then all of a sudden it hit me and I go running back. I go, no deal, no deal. He goes, what, you figured it out? I go, yeah. They're going to give you the ball. You're going to make a layup and you're not going to shoot for the rest of the game. <laughs> he goes, yep, that was it. I said, no, we're not doing that deal. So it's fun. You have this camaraderie, and uh, it's been a blast. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. He has the gambler's instincts to immediately say yes <laughs> to that and figure out a way around it. Yes. So, uh, but it's, it's, you have a great time. They're great guys. Um, so I've, I think it's been one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done. D- did you ever play one-on-one with that player who you were going to bet with? No. No, it's not. No, what I'll do is I'll go into the shooting drills with the team sometimes, but no, I've never, you quickly realize how phenomenal everybody is. Well, to prepare for this recording, I watched your uh, your mixtape on YouTube from the 2019 Celebrity Game, <laughs> and uh, you had, some, you had some, some good moves on there. Just a few, that was it, so. Um, was switching gears a little bit. You know, this podcast focuses largely on gambling law and sports gambling law. And I wanted to talk to you a bit about the NBA's stance on this. For for years, all the sports leagues, including the NBA, were very against betting on games. You know, I've already mentioned the odds of the Bucks winning the championship several times. This is something that sort of fans pay attention to, but the leagues were against. But the commissioner, Adam Silver, came out in 2014 and said, it's time to change our position here. We want to bring sports betting into the light. How did you feel about that back then and now? Um, look, I think it's, I, I think it's what's happening 
around, you know, when you sort of think about around the U.S., I mean, people are gambling more. You've got the fantasy leagues. You've got everything. So I think it makes sense. I think it's just um, it, it's just a reality of where things are going. So I think it's been all positive. Mm. And, the, yeah, there's Daily Fantasy now. And with the way Daily Fantasy works for, for people that haven't played is you get each day a, a salary cap and you can choose players that each have a different price. You know, Giannis would have one of the highest prices because he puts up a lot of stats and, and you try to score the most points. Do you ever hear in the locker room or anything guys saying, oh, my daily fantasy price is way higher than yours or are they just checked out on this stuff? Um, I don't, no, I've never heard that. I, I would assume they're uh, checked out on that. Yeah, uh, on a similar note, I'm, I'm sure this probably is not something that you focus on. But your coach, uh, Coach Budenholzer, you just extended him for three years. So yep. that's that, that's exciting. That just happened, I guess, a couple of days ago. Um, but he's often bashed by daily fantasy players because he um, he he rests your stars more than a lot of coaches rest their stars. Is that a sort of con- a decision that's been discussed within the organization? I think it's a decision that gets discussed between Bud and our you know, our medical staff, I think part of that is just, you know, how long should people play? And sort of our medical staff is pretty much on top of how are they feeling? You know, I would say every player always plays hurt. I mean, there's no player that's, you're not hurt. Um, It's just over the course of a season, you get banged up. So I think part of it is, you know, they try to figure out on back-to-backs and what's happening, but it's always Bud and the medical team. I mean, I think it's just, How's the player feeling today? How long can he go? You know, if, if the medical staff says, hey, for tonight, you know, somebody should only be playing 30 minutes, it's fine. You know, it's usually Bud's decision. And I think part of it is you also want to give other players a chance to play and to produce because you need them. You know, you want to see how, how they're going to do come playoff time. So um, you're constantly, I think Bud's constantly trying to figure out Okay, what are the combinations that work? What are, what's the best way to use somebody? So, yeah, I, the focus isn't really on fantasy. So. <laughs> well, so certainly not, I'd imagine. Sorry. Um, switching gears, I want to talk for a few minutes about uh, cryptocurrency and, and digital law stuff. I, I believe you correctly predicted a while back that Bitcoin was going to go go sort of to the moon over 40,000, which it has and then some. What were your thoughts then and now? What do you think about this crypto craze? You know, my view is once something is created, it's there. So I thought a market had been created for crypto. And it's just that sooner or later, other people also start investing in it. And I just thought that over time, you'd have just more and more adoption of the currency. That was really it. It wasn't it, it was just more from a market standpoint. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for joining. We'll uh, we'll get you out of here. But this has been the Better's verdict, and this is Mark Lazary. Um, as always, and perhaps more than usual, this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only and not legal advice. Mark Lazary, thanks so much. No, thank you. It was a real pleasure, and good luck with everything. All right. Thanks so much.